we're finishing off our series in Ephesians tonight. We've gone through for the last 12 weeks, um, looking quite closely and carefully at Ephesians. And we finish here with Ephesians 6 from verse 10. So I'm just going to read that through from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. What else is there to say? Just this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on God's complete armour. Then you'll be able to stand firm against the devil's trickery. The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in this dark age. Against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. For this reason, you must take up God's complete armour. Then when wickedness grabs its moment, you'll be able to withstand, to do what needs to be done and still be on your feet when it's all over. So stand firm. Put the belt, the belt of truth round your waist. Put on justice as your breastplate. For shoes on your feet ready for battle. Take the good news of peace. With it all, take the shield of faith. If you've got that, you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Pray on every occasion in the spirit, with every type of prayer and intercession. You'll need to keep awake and alert for all this, with all perseverance and intercession for all God's holy ones and also for me. Please pray that God will give me his words to speak when I open my mouth, so that I can make known loud and clear the secret truth of the gospel. That, after all, is why I'm a chained up ambassador. Pray that I may announce it boldly. That's what I'm duty bound to do. It's important that you should know how things are with me and what I'm up to. So our dear brother Tychicus will tell you about it. He is a loyal servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you with this in mind so that you may know how things are with us, and so that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the whole family, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus the Messiah. Grace be with all who love our Lord, King Jesus, with a love that never dies. Amen. So here at the end of Ephesians, Paul finishes with this rousing, rallying cry to be strong to stand firm and to persevere against the spiritual forces that would come against us the key to all this then unsurprisingly is prayer but first Paul goes through what is a physical metaphor for a spiritual battle Paul talks us through the famous armour of God now in first century Israel, and in fact across the Roman Empire, the armour of a Roman soldier was familiar to everyone. So it's the perfect metaphor for Paul to use. The belt, the sandals, the breastplate, the shield, the helmet and the sword. Now I'm not sure if that works quite so well in the 21st century. And I came out tonight without my breastplate. Boom, boom. Uh, oh, tough crowd, Dave. Um, Paul uses the physical armour 
he uses that metaphor to explain the spiritual risks and the areas of potential weakness that we might succumb to. Places and ideas that the evil one might exploit. Because this is a spiritual battle. It's not a physical one. So the physical elements of the armour, they're there to represent spiritual truths. Beautifully, I have a friend every day who prays the armour of God over me. Every morning. And I, I really appreciate it. She prays over a, a, a number of people and ministers that she knows. And I appreciate it so much. Um, and I appreciate her and her, just her commitment to that. I get an email from her every day. And sometimes it's as simple as just the, the subject line that just says, armor's on. <laughs> sometimes she'll go a bit deeper in something, if God has told her something in particular. Um, and I, I, I appreciate it so much. Do you know, our, she was... She's just back from America, this lady. She lives in Lomithgo. She's just come back from America. Her husband died while they were over there. About two, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. And they, they, they did the funeral over there. That's her family are there. And she's come back on her own without him. She didn't miss a day. I got an email every day. As well as updates about her own situation and, and a call for... for myself and others who know and love her to pray for her and for the family there were also there was also an email every single day which was still the same pray in the armour of God incredible faithfulness and you know the, the thing is that you can do this for yourself you can do this it's a wee exercise that you can do for yourself every day you can pray the armour of God onto yourself every day it's only six things to remember the belt the shoes the breastplate the shield, the helmet, and the sword. And as I talk through each of those things and explain what they represent and what they mean, you understand what you're praying onto yourself every day. Belt, shoes, breastplate, helmet, shield, sword. Each of these pieces of armour represents a spiritual truth or an area of vulnerability. First, there's the belt of truth. And a belt of truth is something that I received regularly when I was a child. When my mother would give me a belt of truth and knock some sense into me. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that's partly, you know, knowing, <laughs> thank you, that's better. Knowing the truth, though, knowing the truth, being supported and girded up, held together by the truth. That's what holds us together. That's what the belt of truth does. It holds us together in the truth. And I think that often people, you see, people struggle with the facts of the gospel. They struggle with the idea of a historical Jesus. People outside the church, I mean, people, punters, the folks that we're going to see in the weekend, they struggle sometimes with the idea of a historical Jesus. And I want to say that this isn't something that we have to accept with blind faith. I'm not really a fan of blind faith. There are good, rational reasons to believe in the person of Jesus. In fact, no serious scholar doubts the veracity of the truth of the historical Jesus, that he existed, that he lived and taught and led people for the few years that he was in active ministry. I read a statistic just this week which said that about 35% of the population now 
consider Jesus to be mythical. That's true. About 35. Now, no serious scholar, Christian or, or secular, it doesn't, it doesn't, no serious scholar doubts the fact that there was historically this man, Jesus, who lived the life that is accounted for in the Gospels. Now, whether they believe he's the Son of God or the Messiah or the Saviour, that's another thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying whether they believe that he was a real, living, historical person in history. About 35% of the people put him on a par with maybe King Arthur or Robin Hood. That's, that's where we're at. Not scholars. Scholars know better. But this pervasive idea that Jesus is mythical has infiltrated our society. Even the miracle, you know, of his bodily resurrection is one of the greatest attested truths in history. It's very hard to rationally come up with another explanation for what happened to Jesus. But there is this growing and insidious belief that Jesus was a mythical figure, despite the overwhelming evidence against it. The Gospels, of course, are our strongest and best evidence for the historical truth of Jesus, written less than a generation after the events that they recount. They are unparalleled, absolutely unparalleled, in terms of the, the veracity of ancient manuscripts and documents ancient historical documents we have more and we have earlier copies of the gospel than any other ancient text in existence it really is the, the, the difference between that and other historical texts is is phenomenal i mean if you were a, a scientist looking at that you would say well the, the evidence that jesus is real is so much greater than the evidence that say julius caesar or cleopatra was real because the historical texts that talk about them are a thousand years older than, they, than when they lived and there's a tiny number of them and what we've got about Jesus is a, a hundred or even less than a hundred years after he lived and there are hundreds if not thousands of them I mean it's that kind of difference you, you follow on that as a, as a thought and an argument I mean it is, it's a rational belief but even beyond the gospels even, even more than the gospels Jesus is mentioned in several other ancient texts and writings, Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, all mention Jesus or his followers. Roman and Jewish historians mention Jesus and they mention the early church. There is good reason, solid, rational reason to believe in the historical truth of Jesus. But more than that, if you have decided to follow Jesus and then you've experienced the comfort and truth of forgiveness. If you have known in your heart, if you have known in your life the truth that you are loved, that you are precious, that you are valued by God, and that you are forgiven, you know the truth about God and you know your place in His kingdom. These are truths that hold us together, the belt of truth that sustains and girds us in our faith. The primary message about Jesus, I want you to hear this really carefully. The primary message about Jesus is that, it, is that it's true. If it's not true, it's meaningless. The primary message about Jesus is that it's true. It isn't true because it works, this following Jesus. 
It's not because it works that makes it true. It works because it's true. Because it's true, that makes a difference in our lives. Because it's true, we are forgiven and we know that we are redeemed. Because it's true, we are valued and we are loved. It's not true because it works. It works because it's true. Of those five pieces of armour that Paul speaks about, all but one are defensive. And the breastplate of righteousness defends us from the full-on attack of the lies that we hear and lies that we sometimes tell ourselves that we're not good enough, that we're a failure, sometimes even that we're wicked. You, and don't forget this ever, you are made righteous by Jesus. That is your breastplate. You are made righteous. You are good enough, not because you are, but because Jesus makes you good enough. Because Jesus makes you righteous. That is the armour which you put on. The breastplate guards your heart. And we have a message to share. We have a story to tell each one of us. The story of Jesus as well as our own story. Our own part in the wider story of Jesus' kingdom. And that story is a story of peace. It's of peace with God. It's of peace with ourselves. And it's of peace with one another. Good news about Jesus. And good news about his plan for us. So the shoes then represent our ability to share that story, to tell that good news, to spread it abroad. They provide a stable and secure footing on which to stand, a grounding from which to tell our story. I can stand on the rock of Jesus because these shoes that have been fitted with the good news to tell people that this is solid ground, this is stable life, this is certainty and assurance. Good shoes that stop us from slipping, help us to keep a grip, help us to stay upright as we grow in our experience and our understanding of the peace that we have with God. It's that keeping a grip, standing upright, being certain of our footing that allows us to tell our story and to share the peace that we've received. The Roman soldiers, when they formed up, formed what's called a phalanx and they were formidable. And that phalanx was very difficult to penetrate. You've probably seen pictures of it where their shields almost interlocked and they moved, it was like a tortoise shell thing. And they moved, they said, as one, and they moved together, and it was almost impenetrable. And in fact, their shields protected one another. If I had a shield, I wouldn't be protecting myself with it, I'd be protecting the man to the side of me with it. I don't know if it was that way, if it was that way, it's probably that way. I don't know. With a spear in one hand, and the shield protecting the man to my side, and I had to trust the man next to me. And when you start to trust the man next to you, and you have to be the shield for the man next to you, that, that, that how that builds a unit of men. Trusting one another to protect one another. You can see why that makes sense. Yeah. So not one person is going to bolt and run off because they're scared. Because when they do that, they're no longer being protected. Mm. They have to protect the man next to them so that they can be protected by the other man on the other side. Mm-hmm. You protected the man next to you. And you had to have faith that the man to your side was protecting you. Your shield of faith isn't faith in the shield itself then. To protect you from the lies of Satan. The lies and accusations that he'll fire at you. Your faith isn't in the shield 
but in the God who protects you. In the God who gives you faith as a shield. The God who stands between you and the enemy. Isn't that a great picture? Just as the person protected you with their shield, so God protects us with the faith that he gives us that is a shield for us. It's God who protects us. I love that it doesn't rely on me. Because you know what? A lot of the time I don't get it right. A lot of the time I would boat. But God, God protects me. God gives me that faith. And that faith is in the victory that Jesus already has over sin and death. Faith that protects you. That faith is a gift from God. It's a gift directly from God. And then, a bit like the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation protects what you know about Jesus. It's what you carry in here. Knowing that you already belong to the family of God. Knowing that you are saved and that you're forgiven. You see, you made a choice to follow Jesus. There was a point in your life when you decided to follow Jesus. You made that decision of your own free will. Because it made sense to you at the time. You thought, yeah, do you know what? I'm going to buy into that. I'm going to commit to that. I believe that that's right for me. Every one of you at some point made that decision. It wasn't made for you. You decided because it made sense. You decided because God revealed his truth to you. Because you were drawn into the love and the care of God. Because God opened his arms and said, come, come into my presence. God did that and you went, yeah, okay. It was right. It made sense. It was a decision. It was a head decision. Now, of course, it affected your heart. But you still made a decision to do it. You carry this knowledge, this understanding of your salvation in your head. In your heart too, you feel it. You do feel it, but you also know it. And let me tell you, there are times when it gets really tough. There are times when you struggle, you really struggle with your faith and you wonder if it was real. You wonder if it was worth it even. You wonder if it meant anything. You wonder if it's working at all. But you can think back. You can remember back to when you decided to follow Jesus. You can remember back to a time when that felt like the right thing. You might not feel it now because feelings, they come and go. Feelings are like the wind. Just they can drift off. But what you carry in here when you remember, that's why when we share bread and wine, when we remember Jesus' death, we don't say, oh, we feel Jesus' death. We remember his death. The helmet of salvation protects our brains because we're meant to engage them. You need to know it in your head because the feelings are hard to capture. You need to remember the day of your salvation. Maybe it's the day you were baptised. Maybe that's a day that you can think back on and say, God was close to me that day. Maybe it's something that you've done. You need to remember the times when God answered your prayers, when God healed you, when God healed someone that you prayed for. You need to be cognizant of the truth and reality of God's work in your life. Sometimes you need that. You need to remember it. You need 
the, the, the brain thing and not just the heart thing. The final piece of armour is the, the sword of the Spirit. It says the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the tool that God uses actually to teach and to discipline us. I, I think we tend to think of the sword of the Spirit is the thing that we're going to go out with and we're going to go attacking and chopping and, and conquering people with. But I think so often the sword of the Spirit is used by God to begin to prune us, to begin to teach and discipline us. On one level, and put it simply, the sword of the Spirit is the Bible, the Word of God. We have this incredible and powerful weapon in Scripture, which we can use when we know and understand it. And this is the amazing thing. We can use that weapon when we know and understand it, even in the tiniest part. Even in the tiny, tiny parts. You don't have to know the whole thing. I don't even know the whole thing. I've been a Christian for 29, oh, 29 years nearly. And I, 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 don't, I don't know the whole Bible. But God uses what I do know to change things, to teach people, to teach me. And even if you only know one thing, God will use that to move you. Isn't that cool? Like if I was actually a swordsman, right, it might take me, I don't know, 10 years of training to be any good. When you see them doing swords at the Olympics, they must do swords. <laughs> Fencing, I believe it's called. Um, when you see them doing swords at the Olympics, I'm assuming that they've practiced a lot more. I'm assuming they know more than like one tiny little bit about that. Right? Like probably they, they, they know hundreds of things about that. But God will use even the tiniest little piece of understanding that we have of his word to teach us and discipline us and change us. Isn't that cool? I love that. I've never thought of that before. I mean, it's useful. Every part of it is useful. And the more we know, the better. But actually, God begins teaching and disciplining and honing us from the very moment we become Christians and the, the, very, tiny, the very tiniest understanding that we have. It's not just an offensive part of the armour. I mean, and by offensive, I mean like attacking, not... Yeah. Um, Satan uses it to defend himself against Satan when he's tempted. In the desert, the, the, the devil, the Satan, tempts him and Jesus comes back at him with scripture to defeat him. Amen. And the sword here is also the same word in Greek. I love this. It's the same word in Greek that is used about the two-edged sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth in the picture that John has in Revelation of the victorious Jesus returning on a horse and that, that sword coming out of his mouth. It's the same sword. It is the, 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 the words of Jesus. It's the, the power of Jesus. It's the word of God or the logos in Greek, which is also Jesus himself. John's gospel begins with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's about Jesus. Jesus is also the word. So the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, is also inextricably linked with the person of Jesus himself. This is the power that we carry within us. That's why it's the sword of the Spirit. Because as a Christian, the Spirit indwells you. The very power of God himself indwells you. Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus, 
and God are, syn are synonyms. They're, they're synonymous. Every one of them is God. You carry that same power within you when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. God just gives that to you. That's the power. So, okay, I, I get um, it's, it's a bit confusing, right? This is this all kind of like, whoa, David, where are you going? Um, I, it's complicated, and I'll be honest, it's complicated for me too. But in essence, I think what Paul is talking about here is the message from God, the truth that we can read and know and live in and grow in. Because we know Jesus, because we are filled with the Spirit, it is God's message of love and hope and revelation to us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. That, that eventually was making sense to me. So we have Jesus with us, both in the spirit that indwells us and in the scriptures that God has given us. Jesus isn't just alive in some theoretical way. It's not just a happy thought that Jesus is alive today. It's a robust and engaging fact that we can engage with and we can wrestle with and we can live in that Jesus is alive. I love that. Before Paul finishes this letter with the usual kind of greetings and blessings, he has one final exhortation for us. It's a call to arms. It's the final and most crucial, and I would argue it's not usually counted amongst the armour of God, but I would say it's the most essential weapon in our armoury. Paul calls us to pray. He says, pray on every occasion in the spirit with every type of prayer and intercession. You'll need to keep awake and alert for this with all perseverance and intercession for all God's holy ones. That sounds like a call to arms to me. That sounds like prayer is a powerful weapon to me. Prayer is a great mystery. On one hand, prayer is simple, right? We talk to God. That's it just as easy as that but somehow Paul's instruction here feels bigger it feels deeper it feels more strategic more immediate and imperative than just to utter a few words every day to God in the morning or drowsily before we go to sleep we are told that we are to pray in the spirit and I think that that means that our prayers must be connected intimately with God I've spoken often of the imminent nature of God. That just means that God is here. He is present. He is with us. We asked him, come Holy Spirit. We asked him to dwell with us here. Even before we started our service here this evening, when we were praying through next door, we asked that God would be with us in this. God dwells in this place. He dwells amongst us in our worship. He is manifest in our prayers. When we pray in the Spirit, we are invoking God's very presence. It means we hear from Him as much as we petition Him and as much as we intercede. Praying in the Spirit means that God might lead us to pray in ways that are unexpected and even for things and people that we are unfamiliar with. Do you know it's wonderfully freeing knowing that God knows a situation so intimately and that we join with Him in interceding. And that's where praying in tongues can be particularly helpful for us. Particularly helpful to me. The Bible says that the Spirit interprets all sort of groans and sighs in our prayers. It's like God understands the emotion behind the words that we speak. 
So if you free yourself to pray in tongues, and I know that for many of you that might be unfamiliar, but come and talk to, to me after. Come and talk to me or, or Annabelle or, or Mel or Richard or Mike. Or any, come and talk to us if you want to be able to pray in tongues. We, it's something we could pray for. We could just ask God to give you that, that gift of praying in tongues because it's so freeing and it brings us so easily into that intimate, intimate and imminent presence of God. It is prayer that brings together all that we do. As we conclude Ephesians, we started with the first three chapters that spoke about what we believe and then the following three which really describe what we do about it. It's like, what do you believe? What are you going to do about it? And it boils down to this. Pray in intimate relationship with your Father who loves you. It's out of that that your prayer life will be inspired to mission and to deeper understanding, to growth, to better relationships, to a closer walk with Jesus. It is prayer that underpins and enables and empowers all that we do. Prayer is the engine room of our faith. Both teaching us as we listen and empowering us as we receive. How cool is that? (coughs) It's about what God gives us as we pray. Vision and understanding. Empowering. Gifting experiencing his peace and knowing his love let's pray Father God I want to thank you for the wonderful gift of prayer of being able to come into your presence of talking to you and hearing from you Father God I thank you that you are imminent that you are present that you are intimate with us and I pray Father God that you would inspire each one of us in our prayer lives that we would get to that place where we can pray in the spirit, pray in that intimate relationship and closeness to you on all occasions. Father, I pray that our prayer life would be inspiring and enthusing and envisioning. And Father, I want to pray, just to finish off, that you would bless each one of us here tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your presence. Amen.